0: You're about to
1: listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes and customized corporate workshops and events. But We also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called Amp. Amp is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City Live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. All right, so... This was kind of a wild ride as a podcast. I loved it. Um, And I had trepidation coming in because I interviewed Patrick House, who's a neuroscientist and writer. Um, His scientific research focuses on the neuroscience of free will and how mind control parasites alter their host's behavior. Um, He has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Stanford University and a new book called 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Uh, Be forewarned there is content after i sign off with him because we kept going with the conversation and i said i need to record this and add it to the podcast so uh i will uh say goodbye to him and then um we'll edit in this 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 bonus content so uh, uh stay around for it i think you're gonna enjoy it enjoy the pod mm-hmm. at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Another like the one that comes next. The cloud of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the
0: clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops.
1: At Patrick House, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Uh interestingly, I think for this podcast in particular, you have a study that really runs through the entirety of your book uh, that is centered around laughter, essentially. Can you tell us about Anna Kay and what happened to her?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, this the the kind of motivation of this book came from. I I was asked once by the California Academy of Sciences when I was uh, in graduate school to uh, give a talk on Halloween. They, that, mm-hmm. The theme was monsters, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time, I was studying this like mind control parasite that turns mice into cat loving zombies, right? So that's what they thought they were getting they thought they were obviously getting me talking about mind control parasites. Cause that's what I, that's what I was. That's what I did. Yeah. Um, instead I did something totally different, which is I presented what I believe to be the scariest moment in all of neuroscientists in all of neuroscience, the scariest study in all mm-hmm. of neuroscience. And it was this study. And it was the study that I ended up writing uh, an entire book about. And it doesn't seem terrifying at first glance, but the, basic idea is that there was a teenage girl and she had epilepsy and epilepsy is kind of like in the brain, um, maybe like having small little earthquakes around the globe, but you don't really have the seismic detectors. You don't really know where it comes from, right? There's no obvious kind of like a uh, continental shelves crashing into each other. There's no volcano where it is. Sometimes there, there is, but when you have a mysterious earthquake somewhere in the brain and you need to be able to kind of detect it, what you do is you drill a bunch of holes in the brain and you put some kind of like seismic electronic recording devices in there to hope that when a seizure does occur during this while you have these kind of implants in that the surgeon can then pinpoint exactly where it comes from and so that's a little bit of context to say this this there's a teenage girl she's you know probably one of the more terrifying moments of her life she's getting this neurosurgery it's the, the idea is this you know modern science does not know where your seizures start we don't know why they're caused but we're going to try to find them. And once we do, we're going to go in with a little scalpel and we're going to take out that part of the brain. And something very odd happened, which is, so she was, she was kind of awake for about a week with these electrodes in her brain, kind of stimulating and listening, these seismic monitoring stations, right? And the surgeon is sitting there at a computer, kind of like typing some keystrokes in and uh, uh, induces her to laugh. So he's typing around being like, okay, put a little blast of electricity. And she laughs. And this Mm -hmm. was a surprise to everybody in the room. It was a surprise to her. It was a surprise to the surgeon, to the attending nurses and everyone in the OR. And uh, they said, why did you laugh? And she gave an explanation. And her explanation was, oh, well, you guys are just so funny standing around like that. And then they did it again. And that's the part where I think it switched from being an interesting moment to one of the most profound and terrifying moments in all of neuroscience, which is they did it again. Same room, same person, same people. What? A couple minutes have passed, maybe seconds have passed. And they stimulate her. She laughs. And then they say, Why do you laugh? And she gives a completely different answer. She says, The, the fork is funny, or the horse, the picture of the horse on the wall is funny. They've done this dozens of times. Those, those were real answers she gave. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that every, to me, as the neuroscientist, as the mind control, mind control guy, the interesting thing is that she's giving different answers every time. She's confabulating. In in the clinical world, we call that confabulation, where you're coming up with an answer that has no real basis in reality, except it kind of does have a basis in reality. Right? She's not randomly choosing objects. She's not randomly giving a reason. She's giving a very plausible reason for why she laughed Mm -hmm. at some time in history. The doctor probably did tell a joke at some time in history, or like it's plausible that the room is funny or the picture of the horse on the wall is funny. Um, And so what's so terrifying to me about that is not what's happening to her or this girl at that moment. Right. The terrifying thing to me is we've laughed our whole lives. It's one of the first things babies do. Right. It's one of the first things you do as a conscious creature in this world. And if the brain is always filling in reasons, is always giving you a kind of post hoc after the fact rationale for why you laughed, maybe that means that every time you've ever laughed throughout the course of your entire life, when you give yourself a reason for why you think you laughed, it's different than why you actually laughed. And so to me, that's like existentially terrifying in a way that almost nothing else in and And neuroscience is right? So this, ba- this is, yeah, go on. this
1: is fascinating. okay, so a little background on you know i i I'm an expert in comedy and improvisation, married to a tenured professor uh who's also worked at second city longer than i have thirty six years i'm thirty four. She runs the first ever b a in uh comedy writing and performance at Columbia College here, so a degree in comedy, every parent's nightmare um and and just submitted. Uh, her very wonky book to Northwestern University Press around uh, her comedy theory. What we discovered is in working in she works in academia and I adjacently do a lot as well. That most of the people when she would go to comedy conferences to get part of her tenure, they're also like philosophy you know people that because there's just not practitioners who also are academics and so we're a rare breed. Her main comedy theory uh you might have heard of benign violation there's there's other ones but she has three main there's more to it but three main elements of all comedy is uh pain distance and recognition people have pain and distance that's benign violation they don't have recognition and what we know from second city is if you've got a because it's a at second city we do you know the c- scenes that are disconnected but then sometimes connected and a lot of times that's where laugh comes because a character that was in one scene in the first act shows up in another scene in the second act and simply by the people like recognizing oh i know that guy from the scene they laugh right. Right. and i was so curious i felt like well i understand enough of of um i think i understand enough to know we're storytelling machines so we're gonna say things over and over again just to make sense of a thing but i wonder too if recognition might be playing here which is like you could kind of find comedy. as a seinfeld it's like that is a show entirely of moments to moments that exist, that seem banal, but are very funny to us because we just shift
0: perspective. Yeah, and but you don't think it's... So that's still kind of oh, presumes oh, yeah. that it, we know yeah. and that we're, we're laughing for the right reasons and that there's some alchemical formula out there. Right. And that formula is, you know, X plus Y plus Z distance, plus time, or, or what was that yes. distance?
1: Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's like, um,
0: what, are, what are all of them? Uh distance, pain, distance, <laughs> pain, pain right. uh, and recognition recognition. But I mean, like whatever your formula is, your theory of everything, right. Your F equals MA yeah, yeah, e yeah. equals MC squared of comedy. Yeah. It's still, to me, it's it's almost like, you know, talk about a, a non-benign violation. Like, you you can laugh, and then you can come up with a complete and utterly implausible, confabulated reason and story in your own mind for why yeah. you did. Oh, but, yeah. But so then the question is, when a when a room full of people laughs... And if uh, you they, immediately they ask to be, them do
1: the same thing, they, you, right. So right.
0: They, there's something beautiful there about if they're doing it at the exact same time in, in kind of neuroscience and science, we would call that like, you know, the, you, you the, the simultaneity there is data. The fact that everybody is induced to laugh at the exact, I keep using this word induced. That's like my mind control parasite world, right? We're in, That's you're, right. inducing, That's where we're going you're like, think. you're like shaping a behavior that would not all, all otherwise be there. And to me, it's this fascinating thing where it's like, I, so, you know, my entire PhD, I spent 10 years on, it was a little protozoan parasite that gets in a brain. Right. Yep. And, and it hides inside of neurons. But to me, there's no difference between that, a little protozoan, a single cell little thing living in a brain mm-hmm. and a surgeon with a wand, you know, a magic wand electrode that's in there stimulating someone to laugh or a comedian. Who's inducing through words, which is a physical impingement on neurons in the periphery that then find their way into the central nervous system, right? Like when, when you speak to someone, you're physically changing their mind. You're physically yeah. changing their brain. It's 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 compression of of waves that you know a, a, attack the hair cells in the ear, which causes mm-hmm. you to laugh eventually downstream. And so the to me, the philosophical question here is like, well, she genuinely laughed. She yeah. Genuinely felt joy and mirth. And that's also somewhat surprising in the kind of consciousness world, because that's the like subjective feeling of joy that you're supposed to only get from like real laughter. You know, it's like that's supposed to only be there when it matters, when it means something, right? Isn't, you know, like- No, I know. I mean,
1: evolutionarily speaking, right, I think what I understand about laughter was- uh, a way to deal with a tension, a particular kind of tension. So like you think something's gonna be a threat and it turns out to be like a cat and not a tiger. Right. That 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 you know that tension is removed. No, I I I there's mystery here. Oh, this is what I was thinking. This is where I think uh neuros w- what you do uh and what we do are, are cousins in a way because and throughout the book I felt this because this is a book filled with like really interesting tensions. And 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 one is like we don't know. Like And and when you're improvising, you don't know. So when we train people here, we train them with very specific uh, specific tools around listening, resilience, uh, uh, generating collectively, you know, the whole yes and idea. Um, uh, Because what we know is to do this in front of an audience professionally, because that also looks like a magic trick to people. They don't believe you're doing it. And it's like, no, these people are just supremely well-trained but the biggest thing they have to be trained in is not to be scared out of their mind so that they can't perform when, right. when it's um, uh, uh, a completely like, well, there's no script and you, right. and, and you, and you have to be successful in the comedy or you're not going to keep your job. So it's, it's, it's being comfortable in that with the uncomfortable and, you know, time again, in, in the book, you talk about like,
0: you actually say, Well, we don't really know what consciousness is. Is, is that, well, I feel like it would be a little, there'd be a little more fanfare if I had like solved it in the course of 250 pages of a Maybe that's trade, the next of, a, of a trade pop-side book. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, th- yes, that is true. We do not know what consciousness is. Um, uh, and, and in part this book came out of my continued frustration at, um, uh, people not, not, not people not recognizing, but just kind of this collective within the field. I felt like assumption that, um, all, all many of our consciousnesses are very similar. So it's, it's as if we're talking about one thing is as if we're studying one thing, like yeah. gravity is one thing, um, you know, that which was controversial for a while and then turned out to be it, it true. And so people, um, we're, we're in a stage that I feel like in, in neuroscience research and trying to figure out the brain that is more akin to, I think, like Babylonian astronomers trying to understand the sky and the stars, right? Where they're like looking up at the scar, sky and being like, we know where the stars will be, but not why. We're, we're very similar. Like we know that people laugh. We know how to get people to laugh. We don't really know why that comes with the subjective feeling of joy and mirth and, you know, what what's really going on, whether or not there's the same reasons on the inside of each of our each of our minds i mean that the the kind of of course the very first thing i wrote was um the, the kind of wrote as in like popular science wrote was about humor as well it was about yeah. the new yorker caption contest which yeah. i which i won in like 2008 or something nice and so to me this like closes a chapter in like the uh the, the, there's the laughter part of my of my life right which is trying to understand truly how people laugh and what i find almost like anthropologically interesting is imagine a comedian with a button and every single person in the out of, you know, full auditorium having a stimulating electrode in the exact same part of the brain that they had put it into this, 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 this girl. Right. And then whenever the comedian wanted, they could push the button and make everyone in the room laugh. Ideally, that I mean, you'd think that would be in the uh, on paper a comedian's dream. Like I can make anyone laugh. I can make a room full of people simultaneously laugh at the the push of a button. But of course, that demystifies it significantly, right? But they're kind of doing that already. Like from the beginning, they're kind of up there on the stage with effectively, you know, it's it's a bit of a metaphor, but like little electrodes into people's brains who are waiting for some sort of stimulation. And when I say stimulation, I mean that like kind of nerdily, like electrical stimulation that causes them to laugh. And so like when the surgeon made her laugh, was he operating as a comedian at that moment, right? Like he was inducing her to laugh. He was making her laugh. He was telling a joke effectively by pushing the button, right? And when comedians are on stage and they're trying to get a room full of people to laugh and they succeed, have they become briefly- neurosurgeons (laughs) i mean you know this isn't i don't i don't think if you really zoomed in on the kind of causal chain and you know a causes b causes c and you're like surgeon with an electrode surgeon taps a button on a computer which causes electrical output in the supplementary motor area which causes some neurons in this girl's brain to activate, which causes her larynx muscles mm-hmm. to stimulate, you know, the, the the throat and neck in a way that produces the sound of laughter. That's the causal chain here. And just because you put a joke at the beginning, instead of a button push, like truly what's, what's the difference. Um, so I, I, I kind don't... of love playing with these ideas.
1: Yeah. I it was funny as the book is very, very playful and your your. you're, you're clearly you're a person who is interested in comedy and laughter and all that. Uh, It's funny, about six years ago, uh, Marty Seligman at Penn uh, had us lead what they call Genius Weekends. They bring in people, uh, uh, my wife and I uh, cultivated a group of people that they all flew in, and we just met scientists and, and practitioners to talk about the power of comedy and in this case we were getting down to like well there's laughter there's humor there's comedy and and it was like ann and i from second city uh the founding um artistic director or um editor for the onion uh bob Mankoff, who i think it was a new yorker uh yep. guy um and some stand-ups and some people wrote for saturday night live and i remember at a certain point marty was like you all have to slow down like, <laughs> like we have to slow down this conversation and 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 it was really just really interesting in terms of everyone looking through the le- their particular lens um, at, at this at this concept and how it might relate to the under- underlying science. I, you know, I just wish there was more, you know, we, we use laughter and comedy so much in our real lives. I mean, the advertising industry is maybe 50, 60, 70% because it's, it's such a, great way to get an emotion, but we're not working from a lot of d- data sets that I can tell in, in the research I've done.
0: Yeah. Uh, I remember Bob Mankoff telling me once that, um, <clears throat> that it's extremely difficult to get someone to laugh inside of an fMRI tube. Like, like people want to study laughter, right? Yeah. So th- there's, there's all kinds of things in science that people don't realize we, we can only study things that occur um, while we're watching which is actually a very, very small subset of things like events in the universe. So, so you want to study, let's say you want to study the neuroscience of laughter. Great. You mm-hmm. go, you get into a PhD program, you're there. They're like, we have a $5 million fMRI scanner that can like peek into the hallowed window of the mind, you know, go. Um, and then the person's like, great, I'm going to, I'm going to find the funniest joke I can, I can think of. And then I'm going to recruit some people and they're going to go and sit inside this like sarcophagus of an fMRI scanner. And then we're going to tell them the joke, and just for decades, nobody laughed. There was not a single laughter that was ever caught on, you know. I guess in the media world, you'd say like caught on camera, and then we might say like caught caught in the scanner, like in the fMRI scanner. You just you just never found a laugh. It was like a rare snowy owl, Um, and so so it's this thing where like we really don't. We just don't have the data, right? And we don't have a lot of data of what it looks like inside of a brain when you laugh. And more importantly, well, I, for me, more importantly, um, what happens like the immediate preceding events? You know, like how do you, how do you get, to that, get to that place?
1: Yeah. Are you familiar with Charles Lim's work uh, in no. this area? No. So he, uh, he didn't study laughter. He studied improvisation which in our world is how we create our comedy. And and so it started with him because he's a musician himself, creating a plastic keyboard, uh, uh, did the fMRI doing a, a, um, a scored piece and then an improvised piece, then did it with rappers, uh, freestyle and uh, existing raps, and then Second City improvisers uh, doing scripted work and then um, uh, improv and I, I have to dumb it down because I, I don't, I won't want to say anything wrong, but essentially the key finding here's a Ted talk about this and papers is that uh, the part of your brain um, you basically, you your brain is in a different creative state when you're improvising and that state is uh, lowers ju- self-judgment um, and uh, is high on expression, you know, and, and the, he's got more, you know, he's got so much more work to do on this area, but You know, and, and, you know, clearly in the other examples, there's no laughter involved. So it's not analogous completely, but I think there might be some, something there. I don't know.
0: Yeah. And is there, is there a lot of kind of connective tissue between um, the idea of movement and the idea of speech improvisation, like movement-based improvisation and speech-based improvisation? I I totally want to talk about that. Okay, good. Because, yeah, like a fundamental... Fun premise mouth. to my theory of consciousness, or the, rather, the theory that I believe is correct. But uh, right.
1: I'll, I'll give yeah. you like a couple things on this, and I want you to spit back what you know in this area. So, uh, we so Second City does their process all in front of audiences. We create our comedy, and that that's how we beta test, right? The perfect way, which is, and stand-up comics do this: they play small venues, small venues, small venues to then release their special. Um, so, I've been in situations where, with really good Second City directors, where a line doesn't get a laugh, and he basically says, You just gotta cheat your face left or cheat your face right. Huge laugh. And and I'm like, how'd you know that? He's like, I just have a sense. Or uh um the in any sort of status joke, you you can't have someone with low status movement uh uh be in any way get the high status joke or vice versa. So that that's that's uh very important. Um at Second City shows. We always have casts of six, usually, usually, primarily, and we know the audience needs to see all of them uh, at a certain point, very early in the show, uh, for th- their work to be effective. If you have then someone come back twenty minutes later, you're not going to get early laughs because they have to get to know them. Um, in the same way, stand- uh, effective stand-up comics are kind of sharing their uh, faults with an audience at the beginning of their act. Um, you know, uh, J- J- John Mulaney is a drunk. Amy Schumer is a slut. Pat Oswalt is, you know, uh, fat or whatever. This is, the, the, and, and that connects the audience to the story. But also, if you look at any of those people, sty- their stylistic manner of delivering co- that content is completely different and matches
0: with the comedy. Yeah, well, I think about this a lot with respect to like just language itself and the generation of. So even just in the course of a conversation, you're. I don't know if you would call this by definition Im- improvisational, but like I am always continually mystified by the fact that sometimes I'll be teaching a class. This moment, I have very vivid memories of these moments, which is I was teaching this class and, um, and even even right now I'm having like a little deja vu, which is like, yeah. if I stop talking, n- no other sounds happen. Like I have to keep talking. I have to keep saying words and I don't know which word I'm saying next, right? like, yeah. I'm still in the process of even this sentence, which I'm con- continuously producing. Unsure how I'm going to end it, but I will come up with some end. I trust my brain to get there eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with with all these new kind of language robots and these, you know, I don't know if you've heard of ChatGTP and that oh, yeah, whole stuff sure. where they're, yeah. they can just fill in, they can just fill in words. Um, I, I've long wondered how different the human mind really is with respect to its ability to just kind of like fill in words. It feels like we're just playing a Mad Libs. Yes that we're that we're just hoping to get correct and at some point we want to you know depending i guess on the context in produce a laughter in someone but like i if i can just be a little personal like i i laugh at the strangest i i am so i i've long thought that were i to be accused falsely of a crime and there just seemed to be overwhelmingly evident, overwhelming evidence that it was me. Like it was just obvious that the the police and everyone in the room were like, "It's clearly like." I would just laugh. To me, that's yeah, you'd, you'd go it, to you go to prison. Yeah, it's impossible. And of course, they would look at that as like an admission of guilt yeah, or something. Right, right. When I have, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see how this lands. But like, I <laughs> I don't even know if I want to go there. I laugh well, sometimes. So with an ex- extraordinarily rare and good orgasms make me laugh. Interesting. And being falsely accused of a crime makes me laugh. And just like, sup- like, I don't know why. And so this is to me, why, like, I still cannot piece together um, the, like what you want is a unified field theory of laughter, right? We want a large, we want the E equals MC squared of laughter. And if you do that, you know, i mean i guess newton gets enough credit but maybe he doesn't get enough quite enough because like gravity appeared to be a different thing uh, yeah. gravity on the moon gravity underwater gravity you know dropping a ball and doing geotectonic kind of stress like all these things that gravity is actually about from observation alone you would believe that these were very disparate Moments, right? You could you could not imagine an, an invisible force connecting them all. And so what is the invisible force connecting all of these moments of laughter? Because you ultimately have to explain. Gravity doesn't get a free pass for a few things that kind of violate it. It has right. to describe everything. So laughter or a theory of laughter or a theory of everything about this kind of this kind of emotion would have to describe me in the interrogation room laughing when accused. And every every instance that Anna K. Uh, in surgery every single one of these would have to be explained um and I, it just seems um it seems it seems like an impossibly difficult burden to bank your professional career on the the hope that people will continue to laugh for reasons that they used to laugh
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that, that seems more difficult than neuroscience to me well one of the
1: and we're working for at second city for so long and with so many greats uh well i'll give you an example we we got Sold recently, and and uh we had for the first time an artistic advisory board. So we had our first meeting, and I was, I was like, "Oh, I wonder what that's going to be like." Because our artistic advisory board is Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey, Julia Louis Dreyfus, Jane Lynch, Jason Sudeikis, Keegan Michael Key, I'm Tim Meadows. I'm forgetting people, but it's like, I mean, it is a funny room. Sure. And what was fascinating about that very long meeting in that day and then went into the evening seeing shows, going to the bar afterwards, closing down the bar, the usual stuff with comedians. Um was everyone was there to do business and we would do business. And then we'd latch one of them would latch onto a bit. So one of the bits was uh uh we'd be talking about a process of what, what are things working like now. And then w- w- one of them would stand up and start giving off their credits, like Emmys they won or, or you know whatever or awards. Just as a, as a bit, and and go back to our series talking. Someone else would do the same thing, and I'm like, so this is interesting that professional comedians what they want to do is a uh, get that first laugh, that sort of surprise laugh that's going to make another person in that room like get it, and then up it and up the end. So they all know the pat. We all know the pattern now. And we probably have like three times we're going to do it until we have to find something else. So that's what happened that in that room. I will say your what you're describing in terms of what makes you laugh is the thing that a lot of really effective, famous comedians have, which is they're just not going to laugh at old joke telling. They, 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 it has to be highly absurd. Um, and, 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 potentially even like, like you're saying, you know, where, where they could get themselves in trouble, but they just can't help it. Yeah, right. I, I don't know if that describes anything that's useful in terms of the conversation. No, I,
0: I think all of them could be described by the absurdity of the situation. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and i yeah. let people, I'll let people fill in the blank. So you say in the book, quote, no matter what goes into a
1: brain, only mo- movement ever comes out. And I think you started to touch on that when you're talking about movement, I had to sit with that thing for a while uh, and be like, is that true? Is that true? So, can you ex- explain what? Break that down a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's it's it- it's a, it's a confrontational. It's an aggressively confrontational sentence. Um, and, and part of the, part even to even amongst scientists, and I and I okay. did that on purpose. Um, mm-hmm. Well, in part because it is just factually true. Um, okay. So, so we you know a large part of what the brain's function is, is to hide itself and hide its, you know, similar, kind of similar to how the immune system, you can, you can go, we want most of human history without really understanding it or even knowing it was there, but, but magically you don't have to do a thing and you get a cut. It's, it, it heals itself, right? The brain also is continually hiding itself. And mm. so what I mean by that is if you were to just map, okay, you have a physical brain, right? And then it's got all these outputs. Uh, those outputs are nerves, neurons, And if you were literally to look at the end of every single one of them, imagine just like a a ball of yarn with like dangling, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of strings dangling down at the bottom at the, at the other side, at the end of every single one of those is a muscle. Mm -hmm. That's the brain's only output. When, when, when it goes to your eyes, when your eyes are moving around, it's a muscle that causes them to move around when you're speaking, when you're speaking, it's, muscles of your throat that we compress and air with, right? Um, Every single thing you do, every movement you make, whether or not it's your eyes, your speech, um, possibly even your thinking when movement kind of gets internalized, um, you're always generating movement. That's all the brain does. And the way that it hides itself is it mostly, it has a decently good idea, a decently good prediction of what its movements are about to do. And then it kind of cancels them out. So the best way to think about this is like your eyes are always moving around like three times a second. Your eyes are moving around or blinking and we don't even notice the world appears to be stable and continuous to us. And it's as if we're moving around it. But if you actually looked at almost imagine like a TV scan or of just what your retina is seeing, what your eye is seeing. And think about like how often you jump around and dart around. That's what your brain, that's the input your brain is getting is these like very disparate collage, like scenes from the outside world and at the end of the day everything that comes in every thought you have every everything there's nothing that comes out that is not something connected to a muscle so so so, yeah you it's it's movement
1: right how, how does this affect where you come down on with the concept of free will
0: well it it kind of affects to me um we we need to so a lot of people have, they, they enter into science and you approach with the point of view of a human entering into science. Mm -hmm. I maybe, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where this comes from, but I mostly bond with like single cells. They're, they're, they're my people. Uh, So I have a point of view. uh, There there was a a norm joke, I think early in the pandemic when he was talking about, he was doing a, a kind of the spontaneous set somewhere in New York. And he was talking about how from the virus's point of view, you know, yeah. you guys showing up to this comedy club, I, I don't want to get it wrong, but basically you guys showing up to this comedy club from the virus's point of view, this is exactly what, what it wants, mm-hmm. which, so I have spent my life and career kind of imagining the world from a single cells point of view. And of course um, the brain is just a bunch of single cells. Mm-hmm. So Every single one of them, every single neuron, of which there may be 86, that's the current estimate um, as of 2023, billion in the in the brain, Okay, it doesn't know, from the point of view of those individual cells, they don't know what's on either side of them. They don't know what they're connected to. They don't yeah. know whether or not on the other side of them, they're connected to a muscle as they're supposed to be. That's literally the purpose of neurons, is to connect to a muscle, period, full stop. There's no debate about that. But- evolution has kind of tinkered it and been like, well, what if instead of a muscle on the other side, we put another neuron, we kind of daisy chained them. And the, 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 like, almost like methodological conclusion from thinking about the brain is just a thing that generates movement and thinking about the world from a single cell point of view is simply that in order to understand the brain, we're going to have to understand how it generates movement period, because thinking possibly is just kind of movement bouncing around on the inside of the brain with no, with no muscular output. And so to your question of what, how that relates to free will, um, I just like, <clears throat> okay, let's, let's take this from the point two 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 points of view. Um, yep. One, and you're on stage, you're improvising, you have a room full of people who are finding none of this funny. Mm-hmm. And then two um, you're a monkey, you're subjected subject in an experiment mm-hmm. and you're sitting in a chair with a bunch of electrodes in your brain that's recording everything you have. So in the monkey case, um, there are, if you look at the monkey's brain, and this is coming, this comes from published work, good, many decades of published work. Um, And there's a bunch of objects around the monkey. Just imagine him sitting in like an office setting and there's like a, a stapler and a pen and a thing and a juice box and all kinds of things in front of him. His brain, that monkey's brain is coming up with plans to take his hand and reach out and interact with each of those objects he doesn't even have to be doing them he can just sit there but there's your your brain is passively at all times attempting to create a plan just in case you might soon interact with an object right mm-hmm. it's kind of like the way my favorite metaphor for this is like preheating the oven You've, you kind of preheat the oven for all these different possible behaviors mm-hmm. and sometimes you do none of them right and so maybe let's imagine now in the comedian, the improv guy or girl, um, they're, they're on stage and they're like, you know, I could say one of 20 different things. Now I have, I have a menu of options in front of me. I have jokes that I've told before. There's bits that I've told before. This is familiar in a certain way. I could go down this linguistic path. And so you have these two things, one, someone trying to go down a linguistic path and which is the comedian and two, the monkey trying to basically just like reach. And I, I guess I, I kind of have, there are a few moments of faith in this argument. And one moment of faith is that I have faith in evolution to be efficient, like the, the course of evolution to get rid of things that are mostly inefficient, right? We, we kind of get rid of the junk and the sl- slough off some things. And if there were no free will, if everything was set up and determined and you had no choice or chance and the world was just as it is and as it will always be, it's a huge waste to come up with all those options and not use them. Yeah. It's a huge metabolic waste. The most expensive thing we do as kind of mammals in this world is keep our brains active and going and at 98.6 degrees, right? Like it's 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 extremely expensive metabolically. And so why would we have all of these if we did not have free will? Why would we have all of these kind of preheated ovens wasting all of our energy that we had to hunt for, you know, five days following like a saber toothed tiger or something. We had to hunt it down. And then at the end, you just waste 60% of it on unused plans. You know, like, like to me, there's a mismatch in the logic of there being a fully determined universe, but we have all of these kind of plans ready made.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying, and I, I recall this from the book uh, is um, you think that there is s- s- um, uh, some element of free will, but we aren't anywhere close to understanding and naming it or being sure about any
0: of it. Well, like, no, because that, that would, that's a little bit more of a hedge, like centrist approach okay, yeah, like so oh, not maybe we're not, sure. not, not no not true. at all of course we have fruit like what okay, the hell good. of course I just what? What, well, I, <laughs> the like, burden of proof is uh, to be the burden of proof i think it's bizarre that scientists especially neuroscientists say we don't just because they don't know well sam uh, harris says it
1: and, and this, like i did that thing probably during the pandemic maybe before where i started listening to podcasts with people i mostly disagree with but that right. but, I, but i occasionally find it interesting and sam harris is that for me so he'll be real smart real smart
0: real smart and then no free will zero it, it, well so It's a I mean, it's a very provocative stance to say there's no free will, because what it does is it actually opens up a room full of debate. It opens up a room full of possibility, because then you can be like, oh, and what about justice? And oh, and what about morality? But if you just admit with the truth, which is that we obviously have it, uh, then there's no more, you know, the conversation's over. You can't really you can't really keep going. You can't really. Yes. And that. It's like, yeah, we do have free will, which is how. We've been operating since the beginning of human history. Therefore, nothing is different. Therefore, please go about your day. It's like a little bit less of an interesting dinner party conversation. But the, the how is the burden of proof not on the no free will people? I don't get that part. Yeah, um, I
1: agree. Uh, all right, I could talk to you forever. Uh, but, and we're going to ask you in a moment for your yes and story. But there's a, a bit in the book that I have been uh, telling uh, people about. Uh, you say in the book, quote, there has never been a documented case of schizophrenia in some one blind from birth
0: yeah that felt amazing to me yeah and so part of the okay so just to give some context to why i'm throwing in all these kind of like provocative statements in there in part um i like as i as i was saying about gravity earlier a theory of consciousness is going to have to ultimately when it does exist explain everything It's going to have to explain every rolling thought, every second of every single person who's ever been alive and every conscious non-human who's ever been alive. It's going to have to explain it all. And that is just a strange fact, a strange observation. We don't know if it's a fact, right? Like we hope it's at at this point is it is an observation which holds up to scrutiny, which is to say people have tried to find a congenitally blind person who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, as a, as an adult, that's hard for a lot of reasons. Um, it's hard for a, perhaps you could imagine a very simple reason, which is just psychiatrists don't aren't used to dealing with people who are congenitally blind with respect to mental illnesses of this kind of psychotic flavor or nature. And therefore the diagnostic criteria don't even match or fit, right? You could imagine like a very simple social explanation, which is simply for whatever reason, people who are congenitally blind, who do have hallucinations get kind of shunted by the system into somewhere else or some other diagnosis, right? That's one possibility. But people have tried there was a there was a psychiatrist who went and basically called every single person he knew within psychiatry and said can you please send out like an apb like a interpol you know red alert like i would like to find someone in the history of humanity since we've been documenting things that has been blind and from birth and and had schizophrenic symptoms and they just couldn't find one and what that has to do with consciousness and what schizophrenia is, which of course would tell us in some sense, what the, how the, the brain, when it's operating in its non kind of psychotic modes mm-hmm. is about in the same way that you might study a car as it's broken down to learn how it works, you know, yeah. in its normal operations. Um, I have no idea whatsoever, even I, I'm not even going to do the pops thing where you hazard a guess. I have no right. idea, but to me, what's exciting about that is that people used to like stare at electricity people used to try to bottle it right people used to literally try to bottle lightning and electricity and uh, for hundreds of years before we understood what it was right like you 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 you're it's okay to be kind of mystified occasionally and yeah. i find that to be one of the mystifying facts about about the world and the brain and consciousness which you know to to me that's my attempt to bottle lightning and it's like someone at some point in the future is going to figure this out and explain how lightning relates, you know, how electricity relates to magnetism, relates to gravity. Someone did that. Someone came along and did that hundreds of years later, but, but you have to catalog all the observations first. And so to me, I'm like, well, shit, I kind of, I'm looking around being like, well, you know, looking at my watch being like, well, I might not self-consciousness in my lifetime, but let, let me at least like catalog some observations that I find interesting and hope that someone down the line figures it all oh, yeah. out. I think it like in something like positive psychology, just like,
1: let's look at this a different way and see if we can make advancements of not treating the not starting with the treatment on the problem, but starting with uh the, the good things that some, someone has and and fanning out. So I mean the the therapy I go to is very much that because there's a lot of like terrible things that have happened to me and and traumas and other things. But but the way we focus on that, it's not that we're not dealing with it, but we're starting from this place of like, yeah, I, I also there's wonderful things that I'm operating on that make me useful in the world and a, a world that has meaning and purpose. And, and there's other things that are challenging. And, and I don't know. I, I loved this book. It was hard. So I had to like it. But you're a very playful writer. And and uh, so there's there's uh, funny stuff in there as well. And uh, I, 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 I just loved it. Um, I, thank you. We, uh, we always ask our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us?
0: Yeah. Um, so, all right. So to set a little bit of the, the scene, I, um, uh, after, after my PhD in this little mind control parasite, I did a postdoc also, also at Stanford in, um, ancient genomics. So I I'm obsessed with this parasite. That's all I ever wanted to study or do. Right? Yeah. And so I, was like, okay, we could so the the parasite kind of gets into mouse brains and makes them not afraid of cats anymore, possibly love them. Right. So it's, it's wow. intimately associated with cats. Um, it comes out in cat poop. It's the one that you're not supposed to, not supposed to get if you're pregnant. Um, and, you know, pregnant women are supposed to stay away from the cat litter for, for this reason. Yep. Um, and, and the reason is it gets into the brain and it gets into the baby's brain as well. If you get it while, while pregnant. And so I'm like, you know what, I in the in the years so my PhD advisor was uh Robert Sapolsky who's a oh, popular yeah. science writer. Mm-hmm. And so we we had a lot of like like what if conversations and we were like what if like ancient Egypt maybe the reason they they worshiped cats was cuz they also had this parasite and it got into human brains and then mm. uh it made them like cats. And of course this is just being extraordinarily playful playful with our provocative, you know, we're 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 brainstorming here. Yeah. But there is a That's a bit of a reach, but there's a genuine scientific question to be asked, which is what if we were able to find the most ancient version of the DNA from this parasite? Then we could compare it to the normal, to today's version, and we could actually get a phylogenetic evolutionary tree, and it would be extremely useful uh, to the field. And at the same time, I would get to go off and put my Indiana Jones hat on and like dig up some cat mummies from ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like a great thing. And this was my postdoc. Um, uh, and so the idea being, if I were to find a cat mummy or a human mummy brain with the brain still intact, um, we could get in there and I could like get in there with a needle and and extract some DNA. And then I would sample the DNA. And so the question is, how do I find cats or human mummies? And also drat, uh, ancient Egyptian practice of mummification is removing the brain generally. Right. Yeah. So, um, my, my, uh, postdoc advisor, had connections with the Smithsonian. It was really hard to get anything out of Egypt. We asked Egypt and, the, and their antiquities people there. And they were like, well, we kind of have this thing called um, a history of having our artifacts stolen from us for yeah. the last couple centuries from people from uh, I think your country in Britain. Um, yeah. So how about, how about this new rule? Uh, we're not going to give you anything. <laughs> literally. I, I don't want it to get bleeped up, but we're not going to give you right. I mean, that's yeah. literally what I was searching for. Um, which is the cat, cat poop. Um, and so we kind of had to settle on the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian has archives of all kinds of mummies. Um, and so they invited me over and they're like, well, we're not exactly sure where you're going to find this parasite, but maybe it's somewhere in here. Imagine like the last scene from Raiders, of the lost Ark; It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, that warehouse full of cardboard boxes. Um, and so we, we had a few guesses. One was this thing called Maybe we can find it in coprolites. Coprolites are fossilized feces, fossilized poop, and it's like well, the Smithsonian people—they have everything. You cannot surprise them. If you're trying to talking about like a humorist or comedian trying to surprise anyone, you cannot surprise the Smithsonian yeah, they're, people. They're, they have seen they've seen the world. Um, anyway, so so they're like, okay, we try the coprolite, and then they're like, here's a cat mummy, and they did have cat mummies uh but they were like well but we don't really want like you're technically opening them if you inject with a needle and we don't really open our mummies like a there's curses and b you know there's we just don't do that it violates the sacredness of the object and yeah that's that's kind of old school and so then the guy was like you know what i think we have a drawer of human heads though um and you know maybe some of them have brain in it still and i was like well I thought they took the brain out and he's like, ah, that's a myth. So it turns out like, like ancient Egyptian mummification took place over the course of like 8,000 years. They were doing it for a very long time. And it was a trade, a family trade with like recipes that, um, uh, they would hand down because it was economically valuable to keep the, keep the recipe in, in, within the family. So anyway, it turns out like half of them, there's of course, black market fraud mummification, like half of them have brains because the, the mummifier would take the money and say they took the brain out, but they wouldn't. And so at this point, I am standing at like the threshold of the Smithsonian. And this curator is like, well, I don't know. Do you want to go inside? And I have to, I don't know if this counts as yes and fully, but I have to, I have to fully just be like, I'm going to go wherever this guy wants to take me. I have that's no yes idea and. what's happening. That's, that's yes and, that's <laughs> completely yes and. But the curator of the Smithsonian is offering to like open the archive for Gotta me. How to do it. And he, and I'm just like, sure, let's, let's go, let's go on your, on your search. And we end up in front of like a chest drawer and everything there is just drawers you pull out. And it's just a bunch of human heads, like, like cut off mummified Egyptian human heads that they just have in all these drawers. Sure. And at some point I have to make the final, the final yes. And which is, he's like, oh, look like, is this of interest? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, you might be able to get in through the, there's a hole where the spinal cord should be. So then we don't have to poke a hole ourselves. We, we can go in. And I'm like, oh, well, it's only interesting to me if there's a, if there's a brain inside, like, I don't want to be blunt, but I just want, you know, these, these, I just, how do I know there's a brain inside? He's like, ah, oh, it'd be so expensive to um, take these to the hospital and image them and all that. And he's like, do you really need to know? And I, I can finally, I'm like, I'm going wherever this guy's taking me. I just say yes to everything. And then he picks up the, one of the heads and he holds it up to his ear and he just shakes it. And there's, there's brain tissue inside. He's like, yep, this one's for you. <laughs> like and, God, like I, a pina colada. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it was, it, you know, it sounded like kind of ice cubes clinking around. Yeah. And um, so that's how I think just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I just, I got taken to the bowels of the Smithsonian to have a, a, to have a mummified brain kind of shaking at me. So yeah, I think, it's, it's it's powerful
1: to say say yes and I think you you've made top 10 yes and stories on this podcast. <laughs> and we're literally we've done like 350. Like, it's good really good stuff. Uh the book is called 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Patrick House, thank you for being on the pod.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and so speaking about this kind of artificial versus natural, uh, humor and you know, an artificial versus a natural laughter. Like, uh, I was, I was on, I don't know what, what I call book tour, which is going around giving talks, right. Yeah, the book's yeah, I did that. <laughs> And, uh, um, an actress came up to me and was saying, you know, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about laughter and fake laughter, because she's like, my whole career is based on pretending to laugh. Right. And so about this authenticity, she's like, I often have to, you know, stand in front of the camera and laugh at moments that are not funny, that are not that are not naturally or organically funny. And what she was saying was, I thought, extremely profound because she was like, but the funny thing is that when I remember having laughed, even though I know that it was fake and on set. And, you know, in, induced in the same way that I was talking about with the pair, you know, all the other ways you can induce things. She was saying, like, I remember it as being a genuine moment of joy, like even faking it as an actress, as an actor, uh, you know, and, and these artificial and constrained conditions. She still remembers it after the fact as if it was real, as if it was a real laugh. Yeah. And what I, you know, people people have been a lot in the in the news and conversation lately talking about whether or not these robots that can write are really writing or whether or not they'll, they'll ever be funny. Bob Mankoff now is obsessed with this idea of whether or not robots can be funny and how yeah. and why and what are the ways. And there's a I know there's a, a I believe a robot stand-up comedian. There's a few Marilyn Monroe robot is this woman who does stand-up comedy with with her with a robot. And what this actress said was, you know, what I find so interesting is that maybe the robots when they're writing or laughing are faking it, they're acting, maybe the ceiling, the ceiling for what artificial intelligence can be in terms of its humanness is just acting, right? Like it will never be a genuine laugh from a robot. It will always be an actor laughing. And I found that to be really beautiful.
1: Robots aren't, uh, I would suggest that robots mostly aren't funny um and I have yet, yet to see a robot that can make me laugh like God, any any of any of my favorites, um, whether from Second City or like Patton Oswald I love as a stand-up. Um that whole idea, but the, I think the acting thing is inter- interesting. And are you, have you ever um it's not your discipline, but uh Irvin Goffman, uh who has this he, he was he was nineteen fifty-nine is when his big book came out. And it was about that we have an onstage persona, a uh, backstage persona, and a offstage persona. And it's just littered with performance language that when looking at now, and he's still held up in pretty high regard, we're all performing. I mean, and we all have multiple selves, like this idea that there's that one true self. So it is interesting to me that there's multiple ways we perform in different contexts, in, in different ways, and the laughter or humor, I think, changes with it. So like a laughter club in India, my understanding of, of what they're doing, a laughter yoga, it's not like they're making jokes. They're just having people laugh. And the same results, right? The people feel like that's, that makes them feel good. It's the same. There's a thing I, I, I've talked about before in the podcast. I was dealing with some anxiety driving on the highway, and I still have a bit of it. But uh, to if there's a big truck that's passing me, uh, I smile. And and the fear gets pushed out at least for a little bit, and that that feels
0: connected to the laugh, right? Which feels connected to my interrogation scene laughter yes. as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's fundamentally. <laughs> what I'm afraid um, when I, I interviewed once this uh, woman who was making robotic ballet dancers, and uh, she was saying the the interesting thing in trying to develop chore- like the choreography of their routine, right, is that on some, when, when a, ballet dancer, a human ballet dancer goes on point, right? And they're, maybe they're on point for like a minute. And every, people start to clap and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this, this feat that I'm witnessing. Or I don't, I don't know how long the like world record of being on point is. But like, you know, it's, it's something that we value aesthetically within the art form when it's performed in its highest, at its highest level. But she, but she was saying it's trivially easy to make a robot that can go on point. You just design cool. it with hinges to go on point. But there's no, there's no joy in witnessing a robot be on point. That's and right. so I wonder the, the, whether or not there's similarity there to robot humor and human humor. When you say nobody can no robot has been able to get to me the same way a human can, there's something about the constraint of how difficult humor seems to be in the same way that getting on point is difficult for our physical nature and for our physical constraints on point, we know that it comes with decades of practice and labor and pain and hard work. And it's that pain that we are applauding, right? It's that hard work that we're applauding. Mm -hmm. And so maybe with a comedian, you have something very similar where it's like they tell the joke and the robot tells the same joke, but when, you know, Chappelle does it and it's about race, you know, it's decades of pain behind it. That's right. Uh, And a robot can't do that. (laughs) so maybe there's some assumption
1: i often say no one got into comedy because they're well adjusted uh there's a lot of people working out their crap uh up there and the fact that that i think you can mostly read that when someone's sort of authentically digging in as opposed to fabrication because people fabricate and steal other people's jokes don't end up really being uh, there's a couple of very famous joke stealers who are actually still working in the industry but they are so c-level comedy they're not held in high regard they don't they might get a sitcom but it's like they're not they're not doing what Colbert is doing or Tina Fey or Amy Poehler are doing or you know Nick Offerman and any of those people who all bring a heaping load of themselves into their their work so Yeah. yeah it's 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 interesting getting the yes and podcast is produced by the second city and wgn radio we are supported at the second city by mike farinaccio and colleen fahey our show is produced by andrew harris at wgn the music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by jukebox the ghost if you're interested in knowing more about the second city you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com
0: E